Tonight on Farage, it's six years since our Independence Day, the break with the European Union. But are you satisfied with where we are? We'll look at the politics of it, the economics of it. I'm certainly not satisfied. China, we'll talk about what's going on in China, particularly with the Uyghurs, and why the Prime Minister's father seems to be lobbying for them virtually every single day. And joining me on Talking Pints, a political veteran of many battles, former Cabinet Minister, now Lord Peter Lilly. Good evening. It's the 23rd of June. Yes, it's a day that's very much embedded in my memory, embossed on my body. It was, of course, the day of the referendum six years ago today. And at about ten past four the following morning, it became very clear what the result was going to be. And I was in Reels nightclub just over the Thames, not far from here. Uh, And here's what I had to say at that moment. Ladies and gentlemen... Dare to dream that the dawn is breaking on an independent United Kingdom. It was quite a moment, I have to say, and it was a shock, a shock to the global elites. But six years on, after years of parliamentary trench warfare, we finally did get Brexit. But where are we? Are we satisfied with it? Well, from my point of view... I think the UK's standing in the world is different to before Brexit. I think we do stand taller. I believe that the AUKUS deal with Australia, for example, and the leadership that Johnson has shown over Ukraine are clear examples of an independent United Kingdom reasserting itself on the world stage. The vaccine rollout proved in many ways we can do things better than having them done for us by the European Commission. And politically, I think the good news politically is that leaving is a settled issue, although abiding by single market rules could come back, I think, to be a debate in British politics. But on the downside, I just see a government now that picked up Brexit for political opportunity without really properly believing in it. They tell me, no, Nigel, it's because of the pandemic, we haven't had time. There's so much we could have done in terms of rule cutting to help our businesses, our financial services industry. We just haven't done any of it. And belatedly, Jacob Rees-Mogg has been appointed to do these things. On border controls, well, frankly, far from taking back control of our borders, it looks like a complete farce. And we still have the ECHR able to overrule decisions taken with the Home Secretary in this country. Fisheries, frankly have been let down dreadfully. I could go on. VAT, why is the 5%? VAT on fuel duty not being cut, a clear Brexit dividend. My feeling is that unless people can feel, see some tangible benefit from Brexit, then Mr Johnson, who won a lot of votes on the back of this, may find many of those won't want to go back out and vote for him again. That, of course, is if he's still the leader. Tell me what you think, please. Are you satisfied? with where we are, farage at gbnews.uk. Well, joining me to discuss this, somebody who was very much on the other side of that debate, it's Vince Cable, former leader of the Liberal Democrats. Am I right in saying that membership itself is now a settled issue? I think that's correct, certainly for the near future, uh, maybe 10, 15, 20 years 
we'll go back to it. Um, and the, in the meantime, I think you will find increasing anxiety. We get back into some kind of sensible economic relationship, which, as you said in your introduction, may mean single market, may mean customs union. Well, I wasn't advocating it. But no, <laughs> no, you referred to it. And, and I think, you know, there, there is a recognition now, I think, amongst Remainers, and I'm one of them. Yeah that this is a settled issue for the time being. There's no point going around saying, I told you so, it's not a good look, and, and uh, we just got to get on with it and get, get the best out of it we can. But that said, I think it's fairly clear that although you could argue, you know, we've gained sovereignty, freedom of choice in some areas, immigration, there's been an economic hit. There's plenty of evidence for that. You know, small business exports to the European Union, big devaluation that wasn't reversed slow down in business investment. These are real. I mean, they're tangible and they have hit people. We did uh, actually have some rather good trade export figures to the European Union, didn't we? Last year's numbers were remarkably high. Well, if you look at the six years, it's it's not good. Um, and, you know, people have hit bureaucracy. I mean, the, 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 the single think- market was all about simplifying form-filling and bureaucracy, and once we've left it, we've opened our exporters to those costs, and it has been negative. I mean, the problem is, of course, that any big change you make, moving house, there are changes in life that you make, and there's an upside and a downside, and I guess my criticism is we haven't taken advantage economically of some of the things that we could have done, but, but Vince Cable... When it comes to this single market issue, these single market rules, obviously Northern Ireland is stuck where it is and there's a heck of a negotiation or attempted negotiation going on with Brussels. It, it does seem that Brussels want to be as vindictive towards us across the board as they possibly can be. Uh, well, I think by dragging in science as a, as a balancing item in the negotiation, they are... I think that's bad. I don't think we should be doing that. But, you know, we're behaving badly, so they're behaving badly. It's, you know, two kids in a playground. Um, my view, I mean, if I was advising the Commission, I would say, forget about the science. It's a good project. British scientists work with European scientists. Let's leave that alone. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, the, the Northern Ireland situation is a complete mess. We negotiated an agreement, Boris negotiated an agreement, knowing perfectly well because it entailed a border on the Irish Sea. That's was part of the package. Uh, and if we continue to play games, and it's not just annoying the Europeans, um, who you might say they're behaving badly, but it annoys the Americans. And the, the big prize, the big prize that you could have got from Brexit, which is a serious trade deal with America. I mean, it, there was never any enthusiasm on the American side anyway, but as long as we're being difficult about well, Ireland, Biden and his people are I not going to allow it to happen. That had, had the Conservative Party got on with Brexit, a trade deal with Trump would have been done. But yes, Biden has some, some different priorities on that. Do you agree with me that we are standing taller on the world stage? The no, deal, I, I don't. I, I think um, that there are many countries which took us much more seriously when we were part of a bigger group. Really? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, the EU itself has been all over the shop on Ukraine. Well, Impossible to say what their position really there is. There are some countries that are much more committed to um, they don't military have a jo- support. But they don't have a joint position. We, rightly or wrongly, the British government's taken a very strong position. Yeah, but I always remember, you know, one of your strongest arguments against the European Union was that we might get dragged into yes. some kind of European defence yes. arrangement. Yes. And we didn't. 
uh, and that's not what the European Union was about. So I think criticising them because they have different views on defence priorities is not... Had we been part of, a, of, a, of the EU and the EU's foreign policy, we could not have been as bold on Ukraine as we've been. I think we could have been. The Poles, the Lithuanians have been just as trenchant as we have. I don't see any problem with that. Um, and, you know, although I, I totally agree with the position Boris Johnson taken up with Ukraine, absolutely right. But the, the, the one thing we could have done to help was we actually be much more generous with refugees. And, and there was an enormous we've amount been, of bureaucracy. We've been very been generous, quite generous with Hong but Kong. not compared with France, Germany. They've taken many more people. And we've had this ridiculous bureaucracy, uh, which has, has, has harmed our ability to make a contribution. Final thought, Vince Cable. For those of us that advocated Brexit and believed in border controls as strongly as I did and still yeah. do, that ECHR ruling the other day was, was really an insult to the sovereignty of this yeah, country. Yeah, but the ECHR has got nothing to do with the European Union, as you know. Well, it does. You can't be a member of the European Union without being signed no, up to No, it. but it's a totally separate arrangement. <laughs> but, but let me take your key point, which is yeah. about migration. Actually, yeah. I think one of the modest success stories of Brexit has been the way immigration has evolved. Because what's basically happened is that we've kept open borders. Uh, large numbers of visas have been issued, people from India, from Africa. Yeah. We've got a more diverse society, actually, and, and basically, basic economic needs have been met. So I don't know whether that's what your supporters wanted, but we're still getting a lot of net immigration, we certainly and it's wanted, more diverse. Yeah, so, we, we certainly wanted to open up to the world and, yeah. and not to discriminate against the world. I think in terms of sheer numbers, Brexit yeah. voters would think, think that it's a disappointment. Okay. Finally, Vince, how disappointed are you six years on that we voted that way? I'm disappointed, but I'm getting on with it. I think the political parties uh, see no point in reopening an issue in the short run. I think within five years we'll be arguing seriously about single market customs union or some kind of association. But for the moment, this is not nothing to get upset about. I think it's, okay. been, it's been a slow puncture rather than an explosion. <laughs> and uh, we'll get plenty of time to repair the puncture. Vince Cable, thank you. Well, there you are, a slow puncture, not the total catastrophe that so many said it would be. And I will probably never forgive George Osborne for many of the things that he said in the run-up to that referendum. But there is frustration that we haven't taken advantage of many of the things that we could have done. Frustration, we haven't cut regulation, simplified regulation. And someone who's been studying this closely for years, Anon Menon, Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's. I mean, you've always said there were potential upsides and downsides yep. to us doing this. I mean, very open-minded mm -hmm. about all of it. Uh, how are we doing? Not so well, uh, for a lot of reasons, I think. And some of them are perfectly plausible reasons. We've had a pandemic. It took us years to negotiate an exit. So a lot of years were wasted. But I think now, at the moment, we're in a position where the government is divided over what to do with Brexit. There are some people in the government who are sort of very interventionist. They like a big state. They want to see, you know, levelling up funds sent to the north. There are others who are traditional Conservatives. And government's kind of stuck in the middle of them. So at the moment, we have Brexit freedoms that we could exploit if we only knew which direction we wanted to go in. Which kind of sums up in my introduction, my monologue, when I mm -hmm. said I get the feeling this is a government that went for Brexit ultimately because politically they had no choice, but many of them didn't really truly believe in it. 
Well, I'm not sure about that. I just think people believe different things from it. You know, you know as well as anyone that amongst leavers there were many different shades of opinion. People who wanted control but were happy with high levels of immigration. People who wanted control but wanted lower immigration. Uh, people who, for whom it was purely about sovereignty and not about economics. And others who were quite radical on the well, economics. I think where, where the sovereignty and the immigration arguments came together was being in control of our borders. Mm-hmm. And what's happened since Brexit with now over 50,000 people having crossed the channel in small boats and with the ECHR intervening mm-hmm. over the Rwanda policy, is people are saying this is not what we voted for. No, but I mean, that, I mean, in a sense, that's independent of Brexit, isn't it? I mean, the Brexit is the points-based immigration system that you were just talking to Vince about. And that is very interesting, isn't it, is what you have is a load more Indian IT specialists coming into the UK now. Now, you could say, and I think it's probably true, that's good for our economy. Would you rather have IT specialists or would you rather have fruit pickers? Uh, But it has has changed the nature of our public policy quite significantly. Another thing that's changed that I think we shouldn't underestimate is the political debate about economics has changed. You know, could you imagine pre-referendum a Conservative government worrying about levelling up inequality, the north of England, uh, and and that has totally changed in our political debate. Now, they're a long, long way from delivering, and they're a long, long way from actually yeah. telling us what levelling up means. But I think the way our politics and the way... Our, and the well, Brexit's reshaped our politics yeah, in lots of ways. Many of the old left-right divides have gone. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, Vince Cable's party, the Liberal Democrats, they're getting something of a resurgence, perhaps, in southern parts of the country. Mm-hmm. So I can see all of that. But economically, what are the economic things we could do to take advantage of Brexit? Well, economically, leave immigration. We've talked about that. We could have a new farming policy. I mean, God help us if we can't devise a better farming policy than the common agricultural policy. Uh, And to be fair to particularly Michael Gove, we've taken some steps in that direction. In terms of regulation, we could think through, for instance, what can we do in financial services? We're not going to get equivalents. What can we do to make us more efficient? So China, China gets equivalents on financial services with the European Union, but the City of London doesn't. They're being very vindictive, aren't they? They're being, you can call it vindictive, you can call it political. They, as far as they're concerned, are in a tussle with us and they're going to pull all the strings they can pull, whether it's Horizon and Science Cooperation, whether it's financial services and equivalents. But, yeah, there is very little prospect of them giving us equivalents. But that being the case, then, we should have a serious grown-up conversation about, OK, what should we do now we're free to regulate our own financial services yeah. sector? Yeah. And that hasn't taken place. No, I mean, and financial services, and everyone bangs on about bankers' bonuses and all mm-hmm. the rest of it, but financial services isn't just here in London... It's in every town in the country, insurance industry, pension fund industry, and all the rest of it. And, and those damaging regulations, MIFID II, etc. Mm-hmm. We haven't lifted a finger, have we? Well, the Treasury, to be, to be fair, the one department of government that is starting to think about post-Brexit regulation is the Treasury. And the Treasury seems to have the makings of a plan about things like solvency and stuff like that. But across the rest of government, if you think about the Department for Business, what are they thinking about how to regulate the economy, what to do about fintech, what to do about emergent sectors like driverless cars? They're the areas where I think Brexit presents real opportunity for us to be quicker and better at regulating and get that inward investment. You spend your life studying this, looking at this, (laughs) writing about this, speaking about this. What marks out of 10 do we give this government on Brexit delivery? Well, I think you've got to give them quite a few marks for doing what Theresa May couldn't do. So that takes them quite high. So I'd mark them, I'd say sort of seven or eight for for delivering a withdrawal agreement and a trade deal. Subsequent to that, I think you're hovering around the three or four. There we are. That's the professor's marking. Thank you very much indeed. And in a moment, we're going to talk to a 17-year-old boy who's been kicked out of college for having conservative views. 
I wonder, surely, we should be allowing young people to express opinions, even if the rest of the class don't like them. We'll talk about China, what's really going on in China, perhaps some upheavals politically coming in China later on this year. Be back with you in two minutes. Coming up on The Mark Stein Show, back to provide her take on the fallacious fact-checkers, is broadcaster and campaigner Leilani Dowding. A smashing of liberty, an end to the right of protest, and police harassing the innocent. We join Andrew Lawton for a deep dive on the Canadian trucker convoy as his new book launches. Plus, Anne McCall Hinney joins from LA as her new true crime podcast begins on the gruesome serial killer, Dr. Kermit Gosnell. All that and more on The Mark Stein Show, tonight from 8 o'clock. Six years on from what I called Independence Day, are you satisfied with where Brexit has gone? Stuart says, no, it's not what I was told it would be. And there's quite a lot of that feeling around. Sean says, Brexit was never going to be easy, although I still think we were right to leave. Yep. I couldn't agree more. Sean says, yes, 100% to get out of the European dictatorship, but I hate the bullying from the EU. Getting their own back on us with the migration crisis. It's a point of view. Carl says, we're still a member of the ECHR. Northern Ireland are still essentially in the EU, and almost every party is secretly plotting to drag us back in. No, far from satisfied. John says, no, the only way forward is a root and branch reorganisation of the Remainer Civil Service. Boris won't do anything. Time for Frost to sort things out. And I have to say, my feeling on all of this is we haven't got the complete Brexit. We haven't got the proper Brexit. That's what we need. That's what we want. And the Prime Minister, if he doesn't deliver it, then the Conservatives will suffer electoral disaster. Now, one of the themes we talk about on this show quite a lot is free speech, even if some of the things people say aren't liked by others immediately around them. And last night we had the campaign for real education on. And we talked about the fact that through our schools and colleges, increasingly... There is only one received wisdom, one view that is allowed and accepted. Well, it came to our notice this very week that in Burnley College there was a student, a 17-year-old student, Leo Shepard, who's got himself into a bit of trouble. And he joins me here in the studio. Leo, you're clearly a bit of a rebel and a bit of a troublemaker, aren't you? Of course. uh, I've always had a very rebellious streak, according to many. I get on with stuff, the work, and I do what I'm told, and I don't cause trouble, unlike the mainstream. All right, so you're not physically causing problems at school? No, I never have. I've always uh, heard every parent's evening always that I'm a pleasure to teach. I'm very polite, and I don't want to toot my own horn, but I am a relatively good student. Okay, but you've got into trouble because you've been expressing opinions. You, to begin with, This was a conversation about the Middle East, uh, and you said something. Maybe you said it partly in jest. Yes, it was absolutely in jest. It was me taking a hit at Tony Blair and all the absolute uh, pain and suffering that he caused over the 20 years that the Iraq war went on. He was only the Prime Minister, of course, for a bit of it, but 
he played such a major part in causing such a travesty. And, and you said that, we, that the Prime Minister should bomb the Middle East and start again. No, I said that he should have got it all done with at the beginning rather than dragging it on for 20 years. All right. But then on Twitter, which seemed to cause real trouble, and after that you were put on home learning. Yes, uh, for a few months, and it was awful. I think we all know because of coronavirus that it's not a good way to learn, but I was secluded from my classmates. I was left at home with very little support from college, and a lot of the stuff I had to just teach myself through textbooks because my teachers weren't paying me any attention. And how many of these, I mean, yeah, come on, had you, had you often made these type of comments? No, not really. I've never been in trouble before. I've never even been looked at by a teacher for comments or anything else. It was a big surprise and a first-time experience. And then what, then it really, really went wrong with something that you should... By the way, you know, we've been through your Twitter profile mm. and, and we don't find you saying offensive things mm. on Twitter, but you did share a meme on Twitter, mm. which compared jihadi bride Shamima Begum um, and ISIS to the US white supremacy group Ku Klux Klan. Mm. And this was too much for the, for, for the yes. college. Uh, one of my fellow students decided to uh, bring it to the college's attention after the Iraq comments um, because the college asked them to look into my social media and asked if there were anything that needed bringing to their attention, despite it being posted and seen the year prior. And for this, you have now been excluded. Yes, uh, Ma, the principal told me that she doesn't want me to return for the second year. Because? Because uh, it doesn't, they believe it won't work, me going back to the college, and I don't, they don't want me there, essentially, but they said they will help me if I want to go to a different college, help oh, me get nice in, which I thought was a bit odd. I'm being sarcastic. So you're one year into your A-level course and not sure where you're going to be going in a few weeks' time. We have a statement from Burnley College. A spokesman for Burnley College said, we have a duty of care to all our students, past and present, and strive to provide the safest learning environment in accordance with our code of conduct. The college disagrees with the points made. However, we are unable to make reference to individual cases and cannot comment further. And this is at the heart of it, folks. This is why Leo's in trouble. It's the concept of safe spaces. That's what they're saying. They're saying your classmates, or some of them, didn't like what you said. Yes, and these classmates, they formed a group and went on a witch hunt. These tweets that were reported, it was because they'd all made this group chat and I've been told that they sent everything I posted on Twitter to it, mocks it, and then conspired to report it. And finally, how do you feel about this whole experience? It's been very overwhelming. I didn't expect it to happen at all. Nobody would ever expect something like this to happen. But the support has been phenomenal. So many people from so many backgrounds have come out in support on Twitter, uh, on Instagram, in private messages, and it's nice to know, to know that other people do care. And I've seen other people go through similar experiences, and I remember when I saw them, I thought, I did feel bad for them, but I didn't think about it too much or look into it. I never thought anything like that would happen to me. And then it did, unfortunately. You've been cancelled. <laughs> yes. You've been cancelled. Join the club. <laughs> Leo, thank you for coming in. I know you travelled a long way today and sharing your story with us. And I'm sure we'll hear more of you in the future. I can just tell he's going to do well, this boy. I've got no doubt about it. Now, somebody who's a bit older 
than Leo, well, in fact, I say older, I mean, he's actually 81, is the Prime Minister's father. And this love affair with China never seems to end. Now, he's on his way to China. He's going to be making a film uh, about Marco Polo's travels. His young son, Max, who, of course, lives out uh, in China, will be accompanying him. Um, And I showed you the other week some photographs of Stanley Johnson entertaining the Chinese ambassador at his house in London. And then a few weeks later, Stanley Johnson himself was invited to the residence of the Chinese ambassador. Why is this significant? It's significant because the Chinese ambassador is banned from going into the Palace of Westminster. It's part of the sanctions that we've put on China over their treatment of the Uyghur Muslims, that minority who were sent to all of these camps. But Stanley, not satisfied with merely socialising, gives an interview overnight to the South China Daily Post, where he describes Zheng Ziguang, the Chinese ambassador in London, as a very agreeable, capable and intelligent man. So he's now openly campaigning, openly campaigning for the ban on the Chinese ambassador to go into the Palace of Westminster to be overturned. It seems to me he's campaigning for China on a full-time basis. Does he work for the Chinese Communist Party? Is he paid by the Chinese Communist Party? Well, I'm sure he's not, but I really would like to know the honest answer to those questions. But it brings me back to something I said the other day, that because of all the focus on Putin, Ukraine, Donbass at the moment, we've kind of stopped debating what is really going on in China. And that really, really worries me. Well, we need to get a bit of expertise on this. And Gordon Chang is an author, prolific author, um, about China, the Chinese Communist Party, and what is going on in this country. And he joins me now. Gordon, good evening. Good evening, Nigel, and thank you so much. Is there any evidence that since the West started to talk about the persecution of the Uyghurs, is there any evidence that they are being treated better by the Chinese government? Zero evidence. What we have seen over time is that uh, China has continued its crimes against humanity, including genocide. There's execution of Uyghurs in these camps. And we know that, Nigel, because recently, two years ago, they actually built a crematorium between two of these concentration camps. Um, There's been a rape, which is official policy. There have been the imprisonment of children. There has, of course, been sterilization, forced abortions. Um, This is horrific. And that's why the United States and other countries have formally declared China is committing genocide, which it is if you're looking at the 1948 Genocide Convention, Article 2. And why is it, and maybe the answer is staring us in the face, but why is it that China finds such prominent supporters in Western countries, including people like the Prime Minister's father? With Stanley Johnson, um, I suspect the reason why we're hearing all these statements from him, which are really despicable, by the way, but I think the reason why we're hearing these statements is because Stanley Johnson wants to film a documentary along the Silk Road. He wants to go into Xinjiang, which is where the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs and the other Turkic minorities live. And he knows that he needs China's approval to that. So he is carrying Beijing's water, trying to undermine um, Britain and trying to undermine the free world. So, you know, we can judge this from the appearances. This is a really bad story.
I think it's a bad story, but it's not the first, Gordon. There is a long history of, of Stanley Johnson being very, very positive about China. And, and I've had him on this programme. I've asked him about human rights abuses, breaking the, the agreements over Hong Kong. But he just shakes his head and moves on. Now, in China itself, I'm told that President Xi faces a big challenge to his position coming up in the autumn of this year. Yes. Um, if tradition holds, if the Communist Party norms are followed, the party will hold its 20th National Congress either October or November of this year, where Xi Jinping wants an unprecedented third term as general secretary of the party. And this is, in effect, where Xi Jinping either becomes or doesn't become dictator for life. So this is an extraordinarily sensitive time for him. And it comes at a really bad time because things are not going China's way internally. Internally, the country is in disarray. When you look at COVID-19, when you look at the economy, the debt crisis, all of this, this really is a very bad time for him to want his third term. And I'm told, and you'll know more than me, uh, but I'm told there is a body of senior people in China moving to try and prevent him getting that third term. That looks to be the case. Um, Xi Jinping, um, when in 2017, a little bit earlier, when things were going China's way, Xi Jinping, you know, got credit for everything because he had taken power from everybody. So he got credit for all of the so-called positive developments. Well, you go to 2021, 2022, things are not going China's way and he's being blamed for them. Now, he has, over the course of a decade, accumulated a lot of power, both among civilians in the party, plus also the military. So most people expect that he will get that third term. But the issue is, if he gets his third term, will he still have the same freedom to act as a general secretary normally would have? Or will he be constrained by others because of his obvious policy failures? Going to be very interesting. Gordon, we're going to watch this like a hawk. Thank you for joining us. Come back, please and speak to us again on this very important subject. A few more of your thoughts at home on Brexit six years on. One viewer says to the question, are you satisfied? Yes, but we could put the icing on the cake with the Rwanda deal and get, it off the, get that plane off the runway. Well, only if we leave ECHR, in my opinion, you know that. We've got a complete Brexit. We must have a proper Brexit. Arthur says, yeah, we got one up on the Remainers. Well, we did that. We got one up, Arthur, on the global elites. Neil says, no, we've only got a half-soft Brexit. Broken promises over fishing, Northern Ireland. And we've been hived off. We're at the mercy of the Eurocrats in Northern Ireland. And the UK is an international laughing stock over illegal immigration. And finally, one viewer says, I am fairly happy, but it could be better. All eyes on Boris to see much of how much of a lever he really is. Well, in a moment, it'll be time for Talking Pints. And I'll be joined by somebody who was also very much a lever, somebody who's been prominent in Conservative politics for many a long year. We'll find out in a moment whether Lord Peter Lilly is satisfied with where we are on Brexit. It's 
time for Talking Pints. It's that time of the day. i got to tell you, six years ago at about this moment, I was having a few drinks, feeling incredibly nervous about the result. What was to happen? And we had pollsters telling us we were ten pips behind and all the rest of it, but we won. Well, I'm going to be joined right now by Peter Lilly, Lord Peter Lilly, a Brexiteer. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. Pints. Great day to be on. It is a good day to be on. They are the first guest I've had on who was born and grew up very close to me, went to the same school as me, uh, worked in the city of London (laughs) in financial services. So we do share uh, a bit in common. But interestingly, you spent some years at Cambridge with what what then became the Cambridge Mafia. It was you, um, Ken Clark, Michael Howard... Norman Lamont and uh, uh, Lord Deben, as he now is, John Selwyn Gummer. So sort of the backbone of the latter Thatcher years and the major years, mm. you were all together at Cambridge. I was the tail end. I was the youngster at the end of it. And now it's Oxford. So what's happened? Well, it's been Oxford most, most of the time throughout history. Oxford's produced far more prime ministers than Cambridge uh, and far more ministers. Um, and we're a different sort of thing. There's a wonderful book by Vase's um, father, who was a minister in the Labour government, had been at Cambridge, then a bit at Oxford, then back at Cambridge. And he said you could tell the difference between Oxford people and Cambridge people in the Cabinet. An Oxford person, when he disagreed with you, would say, Nigel, very interesting point. I'd like to consider it further, but we can't do anything else at the moment. Cambridge person would say, the reason you're wrong, Nigel, is... (laughs) (laughs) And that's the difference between us. That's why we don't become Prime Minister. Interesting. We just had, before you in the studio, 17-year-old Leo Shepard, who seemed like a very composed, calm young man, who has said something in this modern, sort of politically correct age, and a couple of schoolmates complain, and the school panics and kicks him out. What were you like at school and university? Well, I was a bit... Like I met him beforehand in the green room, and uh, he reminded me a bit of myself, and he was much more composed. I was uh, a very nervous youth. But uh, I did disagree with most of my, um, you know, people of my age, uh, both at school and subsequently at university. But in those days, it never occurred to anybody to turn on you or try and cancel you or have you excluded from things. So I got on well with those I disagreed with, uh, and they didn't take it out on me. Exactly as it should be. And and we've got got some real problems now right across the board with this, whether it's school, comedy, everything we do. Peter, was politics always an ambition? I mean, there you were, working at Greenwells, big successful stockbroker in the city. You clearly could have had a great career. Um, I always wanted to. Uh, When I was at school and even at university, I thought it wasn't possible. My family had no political connections. I imagined you had to have political connections to get on. Uh, And it was only... Seeing my elders and betters, you know, the, the Ken Clarks and go on, yep. starting to work their way up the ladder after I'd come down made me think, actually, it's possible in this country if you really put your mind to it and you're not entirely stupid, and sometimes even if you are entirely stupid, you can get into <laughs> Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty that have. <laughs> and you were there through some quite turbulent times, of course. You, as an MP, you saw the miners' strike happening, inflation, the battles to get that under control... Um, uh, Mrs Thatcher, you saw at her most very popular. And then at the end, the support was melting away. And and I think, you know, despite your views and support Mm. and the big jobs you'd held for her, you were one too who felt that the end had come for her. Well, she invited me in, she invited us all in, and I was one of the first to be invited in to ask her views. I assumed that nobody else would tell her 
like it was, frankly. So I was very frank and I said I would support her come what may, but I thought she would lose a second uh, round of voting if she went forward. And she was obviously shaken by that because she knew I was yeah. her closest supporter, yeah. one of her closest supporters in Cabinet. If I'd known that others were going to say the same thing, I'd have toned down what I said because I didn't want to hurt her, but I'd still have said it because it was what I believed at the time and I thought you had to just tell her the truth. But I wanted her to go on, I wanted her to win, but I didn't think she would. And if you were back in number 10 today, what would you say to Boris Johnson? Well, I think he's now got his act together. Um, Do he, you? Yeah. I mean, he, he took a long time when he was Mayor of London to get the right team around him and start doing things. The first year was pretty good shambles. It's taken a bit longer because of COVID now. But he's got good chief of staff in the shape of uh, Steve. He's got uh, David Canzini and so on. Mm-hmm. He's taking much more vigorous action over the Northern Ireland Protocol, over reaping the benefits of Brexit but, but, and things like that. But, but, but the problem is... He talks all this stuff. Is he actually going to do it, Peter? Well, things are happening. I mean, we've, he's brought forward the legislation on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And assuming he doesn't suddenly change gear and go backwards, he's published it. That's what we need to do. He's Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's put in charge. Very good person to have in charge. Yeah, I thoroughly of, approve yeah. of. But why wasn't this done a long time well, ago? Well, that's, uh, you know, that's a good question. And uh, there are no good answers to it. But at least I'm reasonably confident now things are moving in the right direction. And how satisfied are you with Brexit as we sit here six years on from that historic day? Well, because we've been slow at seizing the opportunities, uh, we haven't seized as many as we could. But I had to sit on the committee in the House of Lords that had to transpose a thousand laws from European law and British law. And it was fairly chastening. None of these laws had ever been voted on. No. By the British Parliament. And if British Parliament had unanimously voted against them, they'd still have become law. We had a statement today about how we're now going to require them to be transposed, to actually be reconsidered, and if they're not formally approved in the next few years, they will lapse. Uh, and uh, the Lib Dems stood up and said, oh, we're going to use secondary legislation to do this. And I said, how ironic that they never complained that they were in, put on the statute book originally without any vote yeah. or power to reject. Well, now from, we'll have the power to reject. What I get from MPs now is how busy they are. There are vote after vote yeah. after vote. We're making our own law. But they're actually earning their money, Absolutely. which they hadn't done for a very, very long time. Well, I introduced a 10-minute a, a rule bill that would have reduced MPs' pay every time more power was handed over to the European Union. Uh, and that, if only they'd supported it, of course, would have gone up when they got the powers back. <laughs> you were never frightened, were you, at taking on issues that, that, that weren't sort of with the flow? I mean, the whole, when the whole climate change debate really hove into view fully with Tony mm. Blair, and when Blair stood up and said, the science is settled, I thought, well, this is crackers. No science is ever settled. Science is always an ongoing debate. But that was what they decided, and fascinatingly, into the broadcasting bill, which established Ofcom, which we all have to abide by, we don't have to give balance on climate change. We don't don't have to do that. We do at GB News, but we don't have to. But you were one of the handful of people warning that the costs and the way in which we dealt with this could perhaps damage us quite badly. Well, my concern was the cost, not the science. I went to school, the same school as you, and I opted to be a scientist from the age of 12 and did science at university. So I have no complaints about the science. Yeah. But 
I, when government introduces a bill, they have to do a cost-benefit analysis called an impact assessment. I went to the office in the Commons and said, can I see the impact assessment? They said, oh, no one else has asked for it. We'll have to open the package. So I was the only person who read the impact assessment. And it said if we went ahead with this bill, made an act, the potential costs would be twice the maximum benefits. So you couldn't logically vote in favour of it. That might be other ways of achieving the same objective where mm. the costs would be less than the benefits. By all means, go ahead. So I was, it was purely about the costs and benefits, except that in the course of the debate, there were only five of us going to vote against it, yeah. and I went outside and saw it was snowing. I remember. And I came back into the chamber and said, do we realise we're passing a bill based on the assumption the world is getting warmer when it's snowing in London for the first time in 74 years? Uh, in October, and uh, people shouted out, oh, but that's a symptom of global warming. You became the chief denier. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you were mocked and parodied by everybody I, for this. I said, and they said, I said, if uh, the world getting warmer is a symptom of global warming, I understand that, but if getting colder is also a symptom, what isn't a symptom? Yeah. And as a scientist, a theory is not a theory, not a scientific theory, if it can't be refuted by some evidence. And they were putting forward irrefutable hypotheses. So... Uh, I, I still believe in the science. The science is that the world will warm if we double yeah. the amount of CO2. Not by a huge amount, and the implications of that are less alarming than people imagine. Better if we can avoid it, but not the end of the world. Certainly not extinction territory. No. When you look at the world, you look at where we are right now. I've been talking about China yeah, this sure. evening, and I'm quite interesting, isn't it, that you know President Xi faces this big moment in October. Uh, we all know that an invasion of Taiwan, I mean, the economic consequences of that would be absolutely catastrophic. I mean, it would pretty much close us down uh, because of the chips and everything else being produced mm. there. We look at Putin. Does the world feel, feel a very unsafe place to you at the moment? Or, just a, a, or are these just the things that happen? I think they're... I was going to say, there are the things that happen. Uh, but the Ukraine war is something that hasn't happened in my lifetime, a, a war in, in Europe between two major countries. Um, but I'm very averse to saying, oh, things have never been as bad as they are now, mm. because mm. people have been saying that throughout Forever. my career. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And things work out and we stumble through, and hopefully we will stumble through this, and hopefully actually an invasion of Taiwan's a bit less likely. Now the Chinese have seen what happens in the Ukraine. The resistance, in, in terms of the consequences, yeah. Both the resistance the Ukrainians were able to put up in territory which is far less defensible than Taiwan is, mm. and the reaction they got from the rest of the world in terms of sanctions, which uh, were much stronger than probably the Chinese anticipated. So I think they'll think twice or thrice about going ahead with You say it. that, though. You say that, though, about sanctions. I mean, the sanctions are hurting us as much as they're hurting Putin. I mean, he's yeah. developed new markets, he's selling more oil and gas to China, mm. to India... Um, he's helped push the price of these commodities up. He still holds the threat over Germany and Italy that he could close them down. I'm not sure the sanctions are really working. They're probably not, but they're probably pretty frightening to the Chinese because they don't export raw materials, which go up in price when you restrict their supply, but other things which are, with the exception of sort of some extreme things like um, lithium and chips, yeah. um, which... More vulnerable to sanctions, so and financially, they're much more dependent on international trade, generally than the Russians mm. are. So, 
I think they they are a lump and clearly they've been thinking, gosh, how can we prepare ourselves should sanctions ever be applied to us on that scale? Mm. You're still active in the House of Lords? Very much so, yes. Not going to retire? Just Is it politics now all the way through? Yes, I have no real conception of retirement anymore, I suspect, than you do. <laughs> You're even younger than me. I, you know, I count myself as pretty young. I'm not quite old enough to be President of the United States. Well, there you are. <laughs> and you, but you're probably too old to want to go and get citizenship there, I suspect. We look back at it all. You know, you got elected to Parliament back in 83. You're still in that Palace of Westminster most days working. What was the best bit? What's the best bit of all of it for Peter Lilly? Oh, well, the best thing was getting home one Saturday and finding a message from the police saying, phone this number, and I thought, what have I done? I phoned the number, found it was uh, number 10 switchboard, was put through to Mrs Thatcher, who asked me to join her cabinet. The best job I had was subsequently being Secretary of State for Social Security, which doesn't sound very glamorous, but it's actually the, was the biggest spending department in government and biggest challenge, and I had five years. I knew sort of instinctively I'd be there for the whole parliament yeah. so I could think long-term and do things. And that, uh, and I had wonderful civil servants working for me, uh, and I absolutely no complaints about them. They helped me enormously, so I enjoyed that. Well, maybe better than maybe better than the civil <laughs> servants we've got today. Peter Lilly, thank you for joining me on Talking Pines. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, we've got a couple of couple of minutes on the show left. EU leaders have accepted Ukraine and Moldova as candidates to join the bloc, opening a path to membership that's likely to take a number of years. President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, tweeted that it was an historic moment and a good day for Europe. Your countries are part of our European family, she posted. So there we are, wider still and wider, shall their bounds be set. I kind of get it, Peter Lilly, if I was... Ukraine, I'd want to reach out to the West. I kind of understand that. Putin could respond to this, couldn't he? Well, he, he could, but in what ways? I, I think he's already bitten off more than he can chew, and uh, he may try and make life a bit difficult for the West, uh, Germany in particular, with further restrictions on gas and that sort of thing. But uh, I did. That's not going to keep me awake at night. No, OK, fair enough. And your questions that have come in from members of the public. Darren says, six years on, what is your Brexit highlight? Uh, for me, oh, I think, personally, the final speech in the European Parliament, waving the flags and that horrible, sour-faced old bag cutting off the microphone. I thought, <laughs> yeah, we're right to leave. <laughs> Mike asks... How can we leave the ECHR and still protect the Good Friday Agreement? Mike, we haven't got long for this. I feel, Peter, the time has come. I, th I think the ECHR is completely out of date. I think the way that Blair wrote ECHR into the Good Friday Agreement that it is like a poison pill. Is this too difficult to handle or should we do it? Well, if it is written into the Good Friday Agreement, we shouldn't withdraw, certainly not in this Parliament. But I'm told actually it isn't because... The Good Friday Agreement refers to human rights legislation. The Human Rights Act hadn't then been passed. Yes. And actually we probably, so I'm told by a senior lawyer, that we could actually leave. OK. But then again, I guess, isn't the answer really, when you've got political will, you can do pretty much anything? You can, but there are, we ought to be very careful about doing anything that would disturb the Good Friday Agreement. That's the 
what's so wrong with the Northern Ireland Protocol and why we're overriding is, it. Is it would it be a bit odd to sort yeah. of okay. unbalance it. Well, we're gonna but I, I think we can <clears throat> do it without it. We're going to come back to ECHR on this programme again and again and again. We're out of time. Peter Lilly, thank you for joining us.